Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Talking about spiritual jealousy, spiritual jealousy, what on earth do we mean by that? Uh, we're going to see it in action. We're seeing it in action uh, as, as Paul and Barnabas uh, are there in Pisidian Antioch and as there's a huge response to what they've been preaching. God, would you open our hearts to the word? Lord, this is not a small matter. You feed us. It's bread to our souls when you teach us the word of God. You build our faith. You heal us. You give us fresh hope and vision. Lord God, we receive that. I pray it for myself. I want to hear the word, not just preach it. I pray, Lord, you would speak to us and open your word and have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever watched God work powerfully through someone else? Instead of being happy for that person, you felt frustrated. You wished it could have been you. As those feelings rushed over you, you probably tried to explain to yourself why such things could never happen to you. You may have blamed it on your appearance or your intelligence or sinful past or bad decisions you made when you were younger. The result was that you convinced yourself to lower your expectations. God would never work that powerfully through someone like you. Anybody here feel those feelings? You, you, and it's hard to admit it, isn't it? Now, now pastors don't have such feelings. So I said to Mary beforehand, you know, I'm having, trying to relate to them, you know, today. And she said, I'm going to step back and catch the lightning hits. <laughs> That's what she said. Come on, you, this is real, isn't it? Yes. Yes. You know, you look and you watch God doing something through somebody so powerfully. And, 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 and you're, you're glad in a certain sense, but there's a, there's a sadness that pinches your heart. It's, there's this feeling of, man, why isn't it like me? And, and, and then the thoughts begin to rise up. And those are what's dangerous. If you have thought such thoughts, you may have noticed that another emotion came along with them, anger, at the person God was blessing, but also if you're able to admit it at God himself. It all seems so unfair. It appears that God must be just like everyone else. He has his favorites and you're not one of them. And you recognize that? There are certain people who go through life and life favors them. Everything they do, people, I mean, I, I don't know if it's the way they look. I don't know if it's, it's, it's just the position and where they are born. I don't know. But doors open. People, are, you know, they have to prove they can't. Uh, some of us have to prove we can. You know the difference? And, and, and so some people that just the door slam open. I have one such child. I've actually, you could argue all of them in a sense, but I, we got one that is just notable. I mean, he just, every, I, I gave it away. Uh, <laughs> everywhere he goes, the door's open for him. He goes to a football game and somebody hands him free tickets. I mean, it's just all the time. It's annoying. <laughs> the whole rest of the family are like, sure, of course. Mm-hmm, sure. They're, they're not happy for him. They're like, how come him like that? And, and now, I didn't go through life like that. It was Steve who? Uh, you know, 
so some of us aren't the favorites. Some of us aren't the, 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 the darlings that the, the life and the world really embraces. And, and the problem comes with this, that we think God's like that. That God also has his favorites. There's those he will bless and those he will move powerfully through. And then there's sort of everybody else. As the emotions surge, you wish you could punish somebody, but you can't punish God. Yes, you can withdraw from him and claim to be an atheist, but that doesn't heal the wound of feeling like a failure. So you turn your anger on the person, and in whatever way you can, you try to hurt them. Now, let's watch this, this, this spiritual jealousy in action. All right, now I'm starting at verse 40 in Acts chapter four, uh, 13, and you have my translation, uh, which I'm trying to be very literal right there. Paul is in Pisidian Antioch. It is up in cent- what is today central Turkey. He's gone through the Taurus Mountains. He and Barnabas remember all of this. 100 miles of, of rugged, dangerous, bandit-filled uh, mountain range. They've gone through all of that to get to this Roman outpost up there. Uh, it's a military uh, center. It's a, a governmental center for, for Rome. And he go, they go into the synagogue on the first Sabbath and uh, are invited as, as visiting um, rabbis. Uh, you've got a Levite and you've got a Pharisee who's trained under Gamaliel. Uh, bring us the word. And so Paul stands and delivers the sermon that we've looked at. We saw his emphasis on the resurrection. Wasn't that beautiful? Seeing Jesus alive. And we just talked about how they were witnesses. They weren't theologians. They were declaring a truth, an historical fact. He is risen. Hallelujah. So anyway, Paul has preached this sermon. And then he comes to his, 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 his warning, really, at the end. He, he's saying to them, now, I've brought to you this truth, uh, and there's beware, lest you don't believe it. So let's pick up there at verse 40. Therefore, beware, literally look, so that the thing having been spoken by the prophets might not come upon you. And then he quotes, behold, you who arrogantly look down on my words of warning, be amazed and completely removed from the land. I myself am working a work in your days, a work which you would not believe even if someone carefully described it to you in detail. And as they, Paul and Barnabas, were going out of the synagogue, people were asking that during the intervening week before the next Sabbath, these words would be spoken to them. And after the assembly broke up, many of the Jews and worshiping proselytes, those would be non-Jews who worshiped Israel's God, followed Paul and Barnabas, who in speaking to them, persuaded them to continue trusting in the grace of God. And on the coming Sabbath, almost all the city was assembled to hear the word of God. Now picture that. One week, and you suddenly have, I don't know where are they, in some outdoor amphitheater. I've seen the archaeology on Pisidian Antioch. It's remarkable. I mean, it's, there's a, there's, they, all the, the uh, relics are still there. I mean, it's, you can see where the temple was. You can see the, the whole stuff. I don't recall whether I saw an, a, a theater, but there must have been one. So they're, maybe they're in the theater. Who knows where they are to have this, this larger gathering. And, uh, and, but seeing the crowds, all the city gathers, assemble to hear the word of God. But seeing the crowds, the Jews, and when it says that, it means the synagogue leaders. I mean, a whole bunch of these people are Jewish. Not, this is not a, a description of Jewishness. 
When they say Jews like that, they mean synagogue leaders. The synagogue leaders were filled with what? Jealousy. And that's the word he uses. I mean, and it means they were jealous. Uh, I, I, cha- I chased that one down hard. And contradicted the things being spoken by Paul, blaspheming and speaking boldly with spirit-empowered eloquence and passion. Paul and Barnabas said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Now he says he's speaking to the, to the, to the Jews there in the, in the audience. And he's saying, it's, you should hear this first. Why is that? They're the chosen one. They are the children of the fathers and mothers who had faith. Uh, uh, let me just insert this for a minute. Deuteronomy 4.37. It's, it's one of the verses that I'm, I, I, I'm memorizing. I, I memorized and used in my, uh, my, my morning times. I just recommend it to you, parents and grandparents. It says this. He says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. Israel isn't simply a favored people. It's not a racial thing. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those families were men and women of faith. They prayed for their children. They believed God and he gave them promises that they by faith embraced for their children. Therefore, the promise kept working for a thousand generations. It works for you too. Do you follow that? If you, do you love the Lord? Do you walk with him in faith? Are you trusting him for your children and your grandchildren? Yes? yes. Your great-grandchildren? Yes. Great-great-grandchildren. Yes. Come on. Then the blessing will flow. And what it means is, not that they're automatically saved, but God pursues them all the days of their life. They can't get away from him. That's what's happening with Israel. That's what happens with your children too. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, that's what it means. So, so Paul says, of course, the gospel should come first to these who are chosen, who are invited, who are the, who are the children of the fathers and mothers. It was necessary that word of God be spoken to you first. However, since you push it away from yourselves and thereby judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life, we turn to the nations Constantly people put in the word Gentiles, but actually in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it means nations. For this reason, the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light to the nations. You are to be messengers for salvation to the end of the earth. And hearing this, the nations rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. And they believed those who had been drawn toward eternal life. And the word of the Lord was carried throughout all the countryside. But the Jews, again, synagogue leaders, stirred up alarm among the well-respected women and chief men of the city. And they raised up a persecution, a hunt, literally, against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them, taking them out to the borders of their jurisdiction and demanding that they leave. But they, shaking the dust off their feet on them, came to Iconium. <laughs> Isn't that a picture? So they, they, with some police or whatever, they escorted them out to the borders of whatever they, they controlled through the city or the, or the uh, region. And then they said, now get out of here. and Don't come back. And, and Paul and Barnabas stepped away some kind of distance, took off their sandal and went mm, at them, shaking the dust, which means God's going to so judge you for your hard heart. I don't even want the dust of this city on my shoes. 
it, it is a prophetic action, and that's, that was, so that would have been a great, I, I hope we get to see these things someday. Maybe they replay them. That'll be great. And they went to Iconium, and it blew up again. Okay, but that's another story. Spiritual jealousy. Luke says when the synagogue leaders saw the crowds, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They argued against what Paul was teaching, but they weren't really motivated by a concern that what was being presented was biblically inaccurate. Their real motive was raw jealousy as they watched these two strangers who had just arrived in town. So many of the people from their own synagogue were deeply moved by the message. There was a widespread level of spiritual interest that hadn't, they hadn't seen in a long time, if ever. And they must have felt afraid, fearing that their influence over the people was being stripped away. So they fought against everything Paul and Barnabas had to say, which left them fighting against God, even to the point of blaspheming their Messiah. So it's easy. It's so easy for humans to blur the line between God's success and our own. We can fall into the trap of thinking that whatever is good for us is good for God. And that anyone who competes with us is an enemy of God. Do you, you follow that? At some point, you become so focused on your own ministry or on what God is doing you through you or the place he's put you. That, that when someone else is blessed or someone else begins to rise up or even eclipse you. You begin to see it as war. And you begin, to, you begin to associate your God and they're bad. God's for you. He's not for them. And you begin to get into this mindset. And that's what's going on right here. Rather than rejoice at what God was doing. Rather than stirring, uh, seeing a, a revival stirring, they resented it. Years ago, uh, many years ago, before, uh, in a, in a, when I was still in, in seminary, we were in a uh, small church in, in Pasadena. And uh, as the years went on, we began to have a revival. Uh, men and women were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, all ages. I, one of, okay, now I'm reminiscing. But I'm thinking of one of the women. Uh, she was the second woman ordained. You know it's Presbyterian. It's Presbyterian Church. And... Uh, Esther Grether. Boy, did Esther got so hit with the power of the Holy Ghost. And she wore a collar. She's a little lady with a, little, a collar. And, and, you know, the very... And boy, she, you can just see her with her hands in the air. And she just is a roaring Pentecostal. Hallelujah. George Simmons. The power of God hit him. And he just, he went down, actually, in the, in the, in the men's restroom. And, and he went down speaking in tongues. George had taken... Bibles, he and Nessie, in a boat back, way back, down the Amazon River from its headwaters clear to the mouth, preaching to the villages all the way. Is that cool? You know where I saw George the last time? He, he was singing the national anthem. He was 100 years old at the L.A. Kings hockey game. <laughs> he was on TV, one of these get-your-wish things. There's George singing. He had a beautiful voice. So George is full of the Holy Ghost. But you had, you had all of these, and you had young families. And I remember seeing that church at one point where the entire congregation was standing in a, whole, a circle around the, the auditorium with their hands in the air. I mean, these Presbyterians, come on, please. And, and, and these folks, they're full of the Lord. And, 
And in all of that, in all of that, a few people who are religious, who are longtime church members, begin to be highly offended. And they begin to go to war against this. Now picture this. What are you going to war against? That they're all getting excited about Jesus. But you'll find that there is a spiritual jealousy that will rise up. You feel it in your own heart, and you'll feel it, and others will feel it. You'll, you'll watch it against you. If God is blessing you or working through you, and there's something mighty taking place through you, you will watch people who will set themselves against you with an anger and a fury that isn't explicable. You go, what is the deal? What are you upset about? They're upset because... The, they believe a lie. They are, they're upset because they feel left behind. They're upset because they think God favors you and not them. There's something deep going on inside them. It's, Jesus used two parables to explain why there was such spiritually, spiritual jealousy toward him. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew 21. I'll just, Jesus had this, as you know, directed to him big time. Matthew 21, verse 33. And he's, he explains it. He reveals the issues in the heart. He uses this one parable called the, the wicked vine growers. And uh, a man uh, owns a vineyard. The, the man in this parable is God. He has a vineyard and he plants his vineyard and he builds walls around it and he puts a tower, which is a stone tower. We still see those when we go to Israel. The, a stone tower to look over the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. It's the people of God. And then he gives them, has vine growers. Their job is to tend his vines, his people. That's the religious leadership of, of the nation. And then he, he, it says, verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. What did they want? What did they want? His inheritance. Yeah, they want his place. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now let your eye go to verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. See it? All right, he's exposing the heart. He's dealing with the spiritual jealousy. He's saying, what's the deal here? Why are people reacting like this? And he says that they had become jealous of God. They wanted the people's love and loyalty focused on them. They were so jealous that they didn't even want people going after God. They had come to want it all about themselves. Something had happened. Another parable, it's right there in the next, it's the next one, chapter 22. This is the wedding feast. King throws a wedding feast. He invites people to come. He uh, says, my, my, my fatted calves or fatted animals are all... Uh, butchered and everything is ready. Verse five, but they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own business, another to his, own, uh, to his farm, another to his own business. Another place in Luke, Luke tells the same parable. And he says, one said, well, I, I have married a wife and I'm, I'm just too busy to come. Another says, I've got some land. 
I've purchased, I have to go look at it. Uh, all of these kinds of things, I have business to attend to, I can't make it. In other words, Jesus is saying here that the heart of this jealousy, this fury against him, is that their love for God had been replaced by the love for the things of the world. And they grew violently angry at anyone who tried to draw them back to God. Have you seen spiritual jealousy? Have you felt spiritual jealousy? By contrast, listen to the heart of John the Baptist when he hears that people are leaving him and turning to Jesus. Go with me one more place to John chapter 3. This is a, a beautiful example of someone's response. Verse 26 is where I'm going to be picking up. John the Baptist has been, he has been uh, effective beyond belief. All of Israel, basically. I mean, just thousands of people have come out to him at the Jordan River and been baptized. Uh, the leadership has come. Everybody's watched this. He has been the center of what God has been doing, preparing the hearts of the nation for their Messiah. And then, and then this happens, verse 20, 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Would you say that? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You hear that, man? Listen to the humble heart here. He's watching his crowds leave him. He's watching his popularity decline. He's watching everyone go after Jesus. And his response is not to fight. His response is not to push. He says, what God will do, God is doing, God is doing. I, can own, I didn't cause these crowds, and I can't keep them. God is the one who does what he does. And I, and I happily bow to that, but it goes on. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. This isn't about me. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He says, I'm delighted that they're going after the Messiah. I'm delighted. This is why I'm here, is to stand and see them love him, not me. It's not about me. And then he makes one of the greatest statements in the world. And why don't we read verse 30? He must increase, but I must decrease. Say it again. He must increase. Boy, there's, there's the heart of the matter right there. It's about Jesus. If they're falling in love with Jesus, if people are being drawn to Jesus, that's what matters to me above everything else. Believing the truth. Spiritual jealousy is a symptom. It means we believe a lie. That God has favorites. That he wants to bless some, but not others. That there are a few he uses powerfully, while everyone else is left to live dull, ordinary lives. We envy what God does in others because we've lost sight of his plan for each one of us. Did you follow this? We envy what God does in others because we lo we've lost sight 
of his plan for each one of us. The truth is, he has prepared good works for each of us to walk in. Read this uh, Ephesians 2 with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Isn't that powerful? Do you see it? We are his workmanship. God has formed you. He has designed you to, to fulfill good works that he has prepared beforehand. He has predestined. Now, this is, this is where predestination really comes in. God has predestined your life. It isn't fate. But he has set a plan for you. And he has set, he has set good works. And these are great works for you to do. It, it works like this, I believe. Let's suppose this is the book of your life. And God has, has written every day of your life. Here's what he has planned for you. Here, here's what it is. Tomorrow morning, as you turn the page, there will be a whole list of things that God has ordained for you that day. Now the question is, do you choose to walk in that? Notice how I said that? He has the plan it's predestined. You can't change his plan that way. You can simply do it or not. You, you know, we can do parts of it or not. We, but he, we can't change what he has ordained. So what, what we, when we begin to realize that, that God has a, a design for me. He has a plan for me. He has things for me to do every day of my life. He's created good works for me to walk in. I can't be busy with yours. <laughs> I can't be worrying about what he's doing in your life. I can't be competing with you. I have my own assignment. I have my own calling. It isn't, it isn't yours. and Yours isn't mine. We've been fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb, says David, to be able to do what God has planned for us to do. When David said that, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, he was reflecting on the fact that God had designed him and, and gifted him, woven him in his mother's womb to do what God knew he would be called to do in his adult life. And that was, in his case, to be a king. It was, it was to be a warrior. Frankly, it was to be a good shot with a slingshot. God gave him good eyesight. God gave him whatever he's going to need. He gave to him in his mother's womb what he was, would need to fulfill the calling on his life. You are designed perfectly to do what God has called you to do. Do you follow this? You are not designed to do what he or she is called to do. You are designed to do what you are called to do. You are woven and knit to do what he has predestined for you to do. Not what he's predestined me to do. I'm not woven to do what you're predestined to do. I'm woven to do what I'm called to do. And you are woven to do what you're called to do. You following this? Praise God. God has a unique plan for each of us, and he has designed us uniquely to do what he has called us to do. He has designed us for success. Great success. Read this verse with me, John 15, 5. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears... What, did he, how, what kind of fruit? Yeah, God has no small plans. He, God is not saying, well, you're one of my, you're one of my, my, my little, little people, and I don't want to do much with you. 
I'm going to, this is my favorite over here. I'm going to do a lot with this person. But you're just, you know, a little bit, a little bit for you. If you and I follow our predestined calling, if we begin to walk daily with the Lord, you'll, you'll, change, you'll change huge things. Many will come to know the Lord. Lives will be healed. People will be set free. Eternal, what we're talking about is eternal work. This is about souls. It's about people. Do you understand? We are all spiritual. And we're on our way to heaven. We're on our way into, or at least, into eternal life. I, I, one of you handed me a book the other day. It's called Appointments with Heaven. And it's about a country doctor around Nashville who, uh, who was an emergency room doctor. And he describes his encounters with people dying and coming back and all, all that sort of things. And it, it, you know, I, I started to read it politely. And uh, then I couldn't put it down. Uh, and um, I told Mary, and she went and bought three of them, one for her and one for our two daughters. All of them are uh, emergency room nurses. And so they're reading it. Uh, but what, the thing that's so touching, because my wife, my daughters, all of them have had these experiences. Actually, I have too as a pastor. Have been there when people die. He, he describes in one place the room changing color. I've seen that. I have seen that. I, I know exactly what he means. I've seen it with my own eyes. I have watched people come back. I have, I have, I have the, whole, the whole nine yards. But he, one of the phrases he uses is on occasion he has felt like a warm breath just pass his cheek as the person dies, as they step across. People, the whole, we're, all, we're all in that process. We're all, we're all headed there. People are headed there. What you do with your life makes a huge difference. People desperately need you. We've got to come out of this thinking. The, 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 the people around you, the relationships around you, the places God's put you, people are all on their way into eternity. And you know the Lord. And you've been equipped and gifted with, with the power of prayer. The name of Jesus. You can, you, you can pray and God, and God will move mountains for you. God will pull up, move mountains out of the way and pull up mulberry trees. He will, he will do whatever you need while you do your ministry. There are no small assignments. There are simply neglected assignments. The truth is, God doesn't have favorites. But he does have boundaries on what he will and won't bless. To be blessed, I must come into alignment with his will. I preached a sermon a while back called The Miracle Path. You may rem- maybe you don't remember it. But what the point was this. There is for your life and mine a path. On which if I put my foot and I move forward on it, there will be miracles. God will, you'll begin to see the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. You'll see financial provision. You will have encounters with people. You will have doors open. You will have all of those kinds of things that you read about. It'll happen for you. But there is only one path. You know, we get this in our thinking. If I become a Christian, anything I want, anything I do, God, ha- God is now obligated to come and bless it. No, he's not. You work for him. He doesn't, I mean, he, he doesn't work for you. He's the boss. Let's go back to theology 101. He's God, I'm not. <laughs> Got that? He's God, you're not. And you have been called and bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to him. I have, will he care for you and provide for you? Yeah. But he does expect us. He does expect us to serve him. This is about us 
fitting into his plans, not him fitting into ours. You know that? It's all about him drawing us and using us. So there is, I'm telling you, that when you, what is the miracle path? The miracle path is when you begin to align yourself with the will of God. When you say that this morning, Lord, this day is yours. The decisions are yours. I will follow you, whatever you ask. I'm telling you, I'm promising you, the miracles and all that you've thought and wondered where they were, they are there. But they are not there on other paths. Try it. <laughs> Try it. You will see how right I am once again. All right. I'm just, I'm only right because it's the word. Come on. Number two, he does have different assignments for different people. No two people are alike. Every human being, number three, each human being is uniquely designed to accomplish specific things for God. Read with me Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good will. Notice there's two aspects to it. God is at work in you to put the desire to do his will. To, he, God is the one creating the desire, creating the longing, putting the burden on your heart. The things that you're drawing to, the, the areas you see, he actually causes you to, to have a burden, a compassion, a longing. You begin to see people in situations and you think, somebody's got to help these people. What about this person? I, ha I had a woman last night after the, the five. She came in, and she's from England. And she said, you know, when ministries go to England, they go to this city and this city and this city. And she named them all. But she said they never come to Liverpool. She said it's a dark place. And that's her home. She said it's a dark, troubled place. And she, says, and she said, as I listened to you, she said, I realized I, I, I'm so concerned for my city. And so we sat and talked about possibly prayer walking Liverpool, you know, what, what could be done for that city? Where's that burden come from? Where does that longing come from? God is at work in you both to what? Will and to do for his good pleasure. He has putting a desire in our hearts and a longing in our hearts to do the very thing. And then he empowers us so we can. The other day I had a, a man come into my office and, and, and he said, uh, he said, I've, I've been, uh, I'm a, I've been a teacher, but he said, I just guess I've come to a point in my life where I need to set that aside and find another thing. And after, after I picked my jaw off the table, I said, why on earth would you do that? <laughs> why, wh here's a, I said, are you, are you a gifted teacher? He said, I, I believe so. And of course, I know, I know the fact he is. And, and, and I said, so God has woven you and designed you as a teacher. And then you're saying now what I need to do for this season of my life is to stop teaching. Is that, is, that, is that right? I said, let me tell you something about you. I said, you can't stop teaching any more than you can stop breathing. It isn't a matter of just what you do. It's who you are. Do, do you know natural teachers? One of the things about that, natural teachers can be really annoying <laughs> because they never stop teaching. Have you noticed? They'll explain to you everything. I mean, they're reading the instructions, and they're going to tell you how to put, how, you know. And it's, it's like a, uh, one time my mom made a comment to somebody, and she said, oh, I've never taught him a thing in, in my life. And I turned to the person, and I said, he, she never stopped. And, and I, I, I wasn't being rude. It's just like I was just shocked, like, are you kidding? My mom's a teacher. She's an art teacher. And she, she can't anymore stop teaching than breathing. 
uh, just this week. I'm sitting there. She's in a wheelchair. I'm in a care center. And we're looking at the picture on the wall. And again, once again, probably for the hundredth time, we are analyzing that picture. <laughs> and I'm having it explained to me that it, there's really, uh, it's well-framed, that there's, uh, do I notice this? And, and all of that kind of thing. It's a picture of flowering dogwood and a couple of, and some morning glories. And I have, uh, we have analyzed that picture. We noticed that the contrasts are good, the color's right. She can't stop. <laughs> How many of you are natural teachers? Come on, four of you. Yeah, bless your heart. Whatever he's made you to do, it's, it's who you are. It's not just what you do. It's not something you switch on. It's how you, how you think. It's how you are. It's a good thing. Don't you dare run away from what God's made you to be. It may be hard. More to say on that in a minute. It may be hard and challenging, but don't you dare run away from that. It's almost a, like a personal suicide, an emotional suicide of trying to take it and despising who you are, despising the way you're made. There may be difficulties to the way the, you, the, the gifts. There are diff, gifts that cause more trouble than others. How about the prophetic gift? Come on, that'll get you in trouble like before the week's out. But, but you, if God's designed you prophetically, don't you run away from that. Don't you run away from that. That's who you are. God, these are beautiful things. God's not wrong. God isn't wrong in the way he designs us. Since we are all different with different assignments, it is pointless to try to compare ourselves to others. Did you see that? If, since we're all different and with different assignments, it is pointless to try to compare ourselves to others. The only question that faces me is am I doing what God has called me to do, using the gifts he has given me and persevering long enough to bear all the fruit he has planned for me to bear? In other words, not quitting, staying at it, doing what you're going to do for the rest of your life, or however, you know, yes, for the rest of your life. I've said that to the Lord. In fact, that's part of my worship to him often is when I feel old and tired, is, is to say, Lord, I will not quit till you, I mean, I, I, I will serve you. In fact, I told him, I'll, I'll drop in the harness. That doesn't mean I'm going to stay here till I'm drooling. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I won't. But it does mean I'm going to serve him all the rest of my life. Don't you know you want to pull aside and rest? Don't you know you want to just sort of get out of the game? You say, I did my thing. There's no such thing for us people. That is self-indulgence. That is not the will of God. The knowledge in you, the, the grace of God in you, the eternal life in you, don't you dare take it aside and park it somewhere while other people are dying around you. You and I are in the game and we will serve him the rest of our lives as much as, much as we can. You covet spiritual fruit. You covet uh, you, you, you begin to long and say, God, I want all that I can do. I want to, to touch as many lives as I can touch. I want to be as effective as I am capable of being effective. You covet the things of the Spirit. You understand? 
And God will give you, uh, that's, that fruit will become amazing. If we realized and believed these truths, we would not feel spiritual jealousy. We would be delighted to see someone else doing what God has called them to do. Good news is I don't have to do your job. Hallelujah. What sets me free to rejoice when God blesses you is the confidence that God wants to bless me too. He is a big God with plenty of power to go around. It's not either or. It's both and. Look at the confidence in the heart of Jesus. Now I'll tell you where we are. This is the night of of the betrayal. This is the upper room. Jesus will will serve the, the communion in that night. And as they get there, no one washes anyone's feet. You recall this. And then John tells us that Jesus got up and he washed everyone's feet. But before he does that, John reveals what Jesus was thinking. And this is remarkable. And I have it there for you. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come forth from God. And was going back to God. Got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Did you follow that? In other words, Jesus isn't sitting there thinking, oh, I'm the lowliest one here. I I have nothing. Everybody else is more important to me. So I guess I'm the one who's going to get up and wash their feet. (laughs) Jesus, knowing that he was the Lord of heaven and earth, that all things had been given to him, knowing that he had come from heaven, and remember, he's doing this by the word of God. This This is by faith. He had come from heaven and that he would go back to the Father in glory. Got up, put his cloak aside, wrapped himself with a towel and washed their feet. That is not out of insecurity. You follow this? That is not low self-esteem. In fact, he is so confident in who he is in God. He can do the lowliest task and do it elegantly. You You follow? God, when we begin to be jealous, when we begin to have these kinds of feelings, we've lost something. We've believed a lie. We've forgotten who we are. When you and I are using the gifting God has given us to do what God has called us to do, when we're using the gifting God has given us to do, what God has called us to do, we are very effective. People are saved, healed, and set free. My gifting is something I discover When I step out and begin to serve God, there are abilities, temperaments, and passions that are woven into me that naturally express themselves when I begin to work within the body of Christ. There will be certain things that I do that God blesses when I do them, and other areas where I find it is much harder for me and I am less fruitful. You discover your gifting by simply beginning to minister. You step out, begin to help somebody, begin to serve, begin to be regular on almost anything, and who you are begins to show itself. If you have no idea who you are, honestly, it reveals that you probably, out of, out of fear, held back and not stepped out. Some of us say, I don't want to do anything I'm not confident in. I don't want to make any mistakes. You, you must make mistakes. I beg you, make mistakes. You, you've got to have the courage and get out. And what, who you are begins to show. But it's in doing. You discover your gifts. Say, I discover my gifts. Calling's different. My calling 
is something I hear the Lord speak to me one way or another. I become convinced that he is asking me to do a particular work for him, and it is always focused on a certain group of people. He lets me feel his love and concern for them and then asks me to care for them on his behalf. You begin to be burdened. I've already mentioned this. You begin to be burdened for people, burdened for situations, burdened for an age group, burdened for a neighbor. You begin to have the burden on your heart. It's a good thing. So I find myself doing difficult things in difficult places at inconvenient times longer than I thought I could. Because I believe it pleases him. Because I regularly feel him come to help me. That's the sweetest part of it, isn't it? When you're stepping out and moving and who God's called you to be, and he comes and he helps you. Those miracles, his presence, his strength. You you were overwhelmed, you were exhausted, you were afraid. And you stepped in and, and there was God. You know what I'm talking about? How many know what I'm talking about? Isn't that the sweetest thing in the world? Just to sense his, his enablement, his presence with you. It's just, it's just like God's putting his arms around you. Come on, I'm, I am so with you. I'm so delighted in what you're doing. And he helps you in it. And you can feel it. And I see the good things that he is doing in others. You will be effective. You are gifted. You are called. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It's one last thought. It doesn't mean it will be easy. Some of the things that God has asked you to do can be very hard, even uncomfortable to do, but you will find you can. I was talking with a man uh, the other day, just this past week, a young life leader, and he uh, has been working for years, many years, with, with young high school students. And, and he said to me with, with, with tears just welled up in his eyes. And he said, you know, every time I step on a high school campus, I'm terrified. Think of that. He said, I feel old. I feel, or uh, 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 who am I? Why would they listen to me? What do I think I'm doing here? All of those feelings rush in. You know those feelings? Who, what do you think you are? Why would anyone listen to you? He says, picture this. Every time I step on a high school campus, I am terrified. And yet, he has reached, I have no idea how many young people for Christ. Every, every year, he takes all of these young people to Malibu, to the, to the Young Life Camp up, in, up north. It's so effective. Kids give their lives to Christ. All of this. And yet every time he steps on the high school campus, he feels terrified. Notice the gifting's there, the enablement's there, and that doesn't mean it doesn't cause him fear and discomfort. One of the, my favorite preachers is a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. He, he, he's a past generation. He's, he, he came from England and stepped in and took Dwight Moody's pulpit, basically, when, when, when Moody retired. And he's written many commentaries, and they're, they're, they're very good. They're a true pastor. He's brilliant. They call him the Prince of Expositors. And then I came across a quote from him that really shocked me, because here's one of the best preachers in history. And he says this, every time I step into the pulpit, I feel like a lamb led to slaughter. 
In other words, this man died a thousand deaths. How many times did he have to get up into the pulpit full of anxiety, full of insecurities, full of the motions swirling? And then the anointing came. And the Lord spoke his word through him. And then he got up and he did it again next week and next week and next week and next week and next week until we have volumes of outstanding sermons from this man. How about you? Are you called to do something that's frightening? Are you called to do something that's uncomfortable? Does ministering in your gifting and your calling stretch you, weary you? Uh, is it all of the pressures against you? That's part of ministering. Functioning in my gifting and calling does not mean that I, what I do is, with, is easy. It just means I will make a significant difference in people's lives. My obedience in doing what God has asked me to do is one of the ways I pick up my cross daily and follow him. It is one of the ways I tell him I love him over and over and over again. And when I'm serving like this, I am fulfilled. I have no need to be spiritually jealous of you. In fact, I'm delighted to see what you're also doing that you're also doing what you're gifted and called to do. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.